prayer before we open his word together. Heavenly Father, what a glorious thing it is to think that we serve such a great God that though this weekend is perhaps very different than last and there are less of us gathered here today, yet our God is still the same. Thy greatness is not in any, any way diminished by a, by a smaller crowd or, or a larger one. Heavenly Father, we ask for thy direction now as we would look into thy word. Open it unto us and teach us from the same. And we promise to give thee all glory and honor, for thou alone art worthy, now and forevermore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's find and read together for this morning's meditation out of Paul's letter to the Colossians, the second chapter. Colossians chapter two. Starting from the first verse. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead, in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, 
having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. I'd like to conclude with the 15th verse. I did not have a particular scripture in mind, and so I just began flipping, and as I came to this section of scripture that we had before us, I felt that perhaps this would be a suitable place for us to rest and meditate this morning. Of course, this is a letter. And the chapter and verse divisions are helpful, especially when we want to reference things. And of course, the, the, the people that were involved in the division of scripture into chapters and verses, I'm sure gave the, the break points a great deal of thought as well. Um, but sometimes in our minds, we dissect scripture, subdivide it, and take the pieces and sort of present them as being complete in and of themselves when they're really only part of a whole. So Paul begins with the words, for I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you. So what he is doing is, is linking this back to the previous chapter where he explains his, his ministry, his basis for ministry, and his reason for taking this message to these churches in Colossae. <coughs> He is writing to believers that he, had ne he has never had the opportunity to meet before. Letters to people we have never met before are the hardest ones to write. We want to balance how we come across without actually being there to explain. Those of you that had to write a letter of introduction perhaps for a job know this feeling. What sounds too professional and maybe not human enough? What sorts of things can I say that are going to strike the right chord? Because of course when someone reads a letter of introduction it's only one of many and if you can't grab their attention in the first couple sentences or skimming over it, there's a good chance they won't read the rest. So Paul mentions this conflict that he has this difficulty that he has in writing to people that he has never met before. He has to prove his apostleship and his reason for um, writing. He says specifically, he's writing about the mystery, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. The dual mystery, really, that God would become man and then the other portion of that mystery is that man or God would now reside in man. That was something that was hinted at in the Old Testament, but not fully explained. <clears throat> this great mystery. Now he writes the objective for this letter here, for those that have never met him in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted being knit together in love. I find that interesting. His primary uh, reason for writing them was not to explain his own position as an apostle or to 
lift up the revelation that he had been given by the Lord. It was that their hearts would be knit together after reading this letter. There were riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. And we've touched on that briefly. Now he goes on to talk about something very interesting. Paul is called the theologian of the New Testament, and for good reason. The mystic of the New Testament is none other than the Apostle John. John, the beloved disciple. But in the mysticism of John, you will find much theology. And in the theology of Paul, you will also find much mysticism. What do I mean by that? Because, of course, that's a word with a lot of um, confusion around it. Mysticism simply derives from the word mystery, something that is either difficult or cannot be known and then described. And Paul talks a lot about these mysteries here. And he warns about certain things, and I think it's good that we keep these things in mind. The intellect is good and useful. We can say with Solomon that wisdom excels foolishness as the light excels darkness. It's good to be intelligent. It's good to use the reason that we have been given. And yet reason alone is not sufficient to tell us everything. There are certain things that can only be understood by other areas of knowledge. I'd include in those things things like feelings. I can describe to you physiologically, what happens when someone is grieving. But unless I have gone through a process of intense grieving myself, my knowledge is only incomplete. It's based only on partial data, if you will. There is another realm of knowledge. One that classical science has a difficulty with. And that is the realm of the spiritual. It's uncomfortable with the spiritual because it cannot be measured with the regular instruments it uses in the natural world. And yet it can acknowledge that there is something there that seems to be beyond, beyond the realm of pure reason. You only have to listen to some of the great minds that can watch lectures and so on on YouTube to understand that some of the brightest and brilliant, most brilliant uh, um, uh, men have realized that there was something more than just simply the, the, the physical. There was something that touched on, 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 an, on another world, another reality, which actually had an influence in this reality. And to deny its existence would be foolish, would be unintelligent. But what to do with that? 
Man wants to know. He looks to his environment to try to understand, to try to understand things about himself. The interesting thing is that knowledge always comes from outside him. We start as an infant, knowing very little, except perhaps pangs of hunger and whether or not we're sleepy, when we're uncomfortable, human touch and affection. We understand those things from a very early point. But then from there, we add knowledge to what we experience, and we always add it from outside of ourselves. Experiences, things people have taught us, things we learn in school, things we read. Reading is a tremendous source of knowledge. The thoughts of others being put into our own minds. You know, if we would just stop and think about that one for a moment, the process of reading, what happens when we read, and what it does to our mind. I mean, that's just, that's fascinating to me, but perhaps I'm digressing. Yet the physical reality is not the only reality, as we've said. Paul is expecting, through this letter that he has written, to have a spiritual effect on those he's writing to. Think about that now for a moment. The spiritual effect would be from them reading the words or having them read to them, because, of course, many did not, were not able to read. They would hear those words. Those words would create thoughts that would enter into their mind. Those thoughts would be assimilated into their own knowledge. They would sift through them and see whether it's true or false. They would add that to their own knowledge. That knowledge now would create a spiritual response in them. And the result would be that their hearts would be knit together in love. There's an example of something that empirical science can't really describe to you. Empirical science can describe proximity, can tell you who you're sitting next to, perhaps, or who you're, you spend the majority of your time with. But it could very well be that that person is someone that you can't stand. Other circumstances force you to be with that person. But the result of this letter was going to be a knitting together of hearts. Now, here's, here's, here's the really fascinating part to me. This, to me, is a, a mystery of God that the words written on this page by a man in another language that I have never met over 2,000 years ago can have the same effect on me today, here, in the year 2020, on the continent of North America, in the country of Canada, in the city of Toronto, with a group of believers that have nothing to do with those believers who were written to then. That, to me, is a mystery. That, to me, is something that stirs my heart. That fascinates me. And that gets sweeter with the passage of every day. That's a mystery. There's no rational explanation for it. That I can relate to the same experiences that some people who lived so long ago experienced. That the warnings that Apostle Paul writes to the believers in Colossae back then are still important for me today. I have not outgrown them. Listen to him. 
as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. So walk ye in him. Think about that for a moment. I mentioned before in a sermon about the idea of spirit infusing spirit. Now picture, spiritually if you will, Christ Jesus walking. One step in front of the other. And now you step into him and you are now performing the same things, walking the same way he did, doing the same things that he did. You are now walking in him. The funny thing is, that's something I think all of you can understand that have embraced the cause of Christ. What it means to be doing what Jesus would want you to do. To walk how Jesus would want you to walk. To walk where he would want you to walk. We understand that. But that organ of knowledge isn't the intellect. That's a spiritual thing because we know what it's like to do that. We know what it's like to be walking with him. But we need to be warned. Because, of course, this is not a physical reality we can see. This is a spiritual one. We need to be warned where we are stepping outside of Christ, where we're not in alignment with him doing what he would do. That's something we still need to be reminded of every day. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Roots generally don't move. For those of you that have been up to Algonquin and points north, the great Canadian shield is a huge mantle of granite and quartz and other minerals, of course, that, that blankets the northern section here. And the soil up there is not very deep. It's actually fairly acidic from all the pine and, and coniferous trees up there. And the trees there, though they can grow to great heights, they often grow on top of very poor soil that is not very deep. And so as a result, the roots have to spread. Spread to give the, the, the tree stability. But when enough of the soil washes away, or the tree gets too big, or a wind comes along that's too powerful, that whole big tree sometimes gets toppled over, and you see a huge mat of roots that once held that tree down. Of course, once that happens, there's only one root or one path for the tree to follow, and that's simply decomposition. It's done. The connection to the, the, the soil that nurtured it is gone. We can understand, too, how it's important that we're rooted and not easily uprooted. Having found Christ, we need to grow deeper in him. Again, that's a mystery. I think many of you already know what that means. But I only give you an illustration, and that you extrapolate now into the spiritual, what that means. Time in prayer, time in the word, time with believers, time with unbelievers, sharing the faith that we've received. The result of this being deep-rooted in the faith doesn't produce some kind of a withdrawal or, or asceticism from society that we, we, we don't want to be 
touched with, uh, with, with, with society or, or we simply retreat into like a monastery or something like that like others have done. Abounding therein with thanksgiving. That's another warning to me. As I get older, I tend to get a little bit more cynical about things. A little bit more jaded. I've seen that before. I've seen how this works out. This isn't going to go anywhere or it's not going to end well. But that's not what God has in mind for me. He's expecting me to put roots deep in him, not in my own experiences. The result of that will be an abounding of thanksgiving. One only has to read Paul's letters written from a prison cell to realize the joy that that man had in spite of difficult circumstances. The other warning here is also a very prescient one, a timely warning for us. Beware lest any man spoil you, plunder you, literally. Spoil doesn't mean like to rot, like a fruit. Spoil means to plunder. Through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. There's a lot there. Philosophy is one of those words that we we read a lot but don't think much about. Philosophia. Phil is from the, the, the Greek um, prefix for, for love or affinity for. And Sophia is the, the word for wisdom. So a love of wisdom is what philosophy should be. Unfortunately, there's a lot of foolishness that's published in the name of philosophy. Some of it we see it working itself out in our culture as we speak. But this so-called love of wisdom calls a vain deceit an empty thing that tricks you. Beware of that. Beware of using your intellect as your only ruler or, or gauge of how, how great you are. People can think a lot of themselves because of an intellect only to find out, only to find out at the end of their life they've been a fool. Read how history records the ending of some of the great men that have sought wisdom apart from God. It's very sad. Brother Doug mentioned the end of many atheists in a sermon not so long ago. After the tradition of men, the building of patterns that men set up. We all know men are fallible. That's a truism, I think, that no one would argue with, Christian or non-Christian. Men and women are fallible. We know that. So then why do we hang so much on the words of men and women? Why do we build our lives on their philosophies and thoughts? What assurance do we have that they got it right? Wisdom always comes from outside of ourselves. I, I mentioned that before. But what's its source? There are good sources and bad sources. We know that. How do we test that? How do we prove it? 
the rudiments of this world, the building blocks, the rudimentary things, the things that are built up at a low level. We don't expect children to simply spend 18 years living out childhood and that's going to somehow prepare them for a career or for an occupation. There's training, there's building that goes on. And if the child would like a certain occupation, there's certain things that need to be put into place and built upon in order to get there. One can't study, say, auto mechanics for their entire high school career and expect to be a surgeon with the rationale that I'm just, I'm working on problems and, and putting together parts. Surgeons probably don't like that description of their job, but um, that's essentially what it is. You have to build together the proper things. So how can we know? How can we know we're drawing from the proper well? Many ways. The wonderful thing about the Western tradition of science is that it's empirical. That means it's testable. We can verify, we can construct an experiment, it has an expected result, and that verifies that the theory, or the hypothesis, if you want to use scientific language, is correct. It's testable. But what happens when we move on to things that are not testable in the empirical world? How can we know? That's where it gets more difficult. And that's where we must realize we need to submit to outside help. After the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. How else did you expect the eternal, unknowable, infinite God to reveal himself to finite, limited creation? What would be the best way that you can come up with to do that? A God so great and so unknowable, a humanity so limited and small. How do you reveal the mind of such a great being to such a limited one? The elegant intellectual solution to that problem is this. God must become a man. It was the only way. The greater must be reduced to the level of the lesser, if the lesser is to understand. Don't we do that with children? Something really fascinating about language. Language fascinates me. One of the things that fascinates me is the way that we speak to children. Children grow. They understand. They learn. We talk to them at different levels at different times, right? We start off with very simple, small words. But the interesting thing is this. We subconsciously use words and language a little higher than their level of comprehension. We are constantly feeding in new words that are a little bigger, a little bit more complicated than what they already know. Why? Because that's the way we learn. 
That's the way the language is built. That's the way the intelligence develops. And so we do this subconsciously. Watch yourself next time you're interacting with children, and you'll see you'll do the same thing. Jesus does the same with us. Paul did the same with the early Christians. He says, I fed you with milk and not with meat because you weren't able yet. There are so many things that we could speak about this morning. We've touched only on one section of one chapter of one letter. There's so much that we could sink our roots into. There's so much to be thankful for. There's so much growing that's available to us. There's still so much to know. Now we so often limit the Spirit of God, don't we? We find the temporal, the rudimentary, the base, the vain, the deceitful, and we fill our time with those things. So what do we do with them? And you, being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Those base parts of us, those parts that are empty, they need to die. Why? Some of those things I like. Some of those things I find comfortable. Some of those things make me look good when I compare myself with other people because of them. Brother, sister, needs to be nailed to the cross. Why? So that the best possible version of yourself can come to the front. Look at the life of Apostle Paul. There was a lot that he could claim as being a um, really beneficial, noteworthy, remarkable about himself. He talks about his, his genetics, as you, if, if you will, his, his background as a, 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 as, a, as a son of Israel, his, his intelligence in the things of the law. And in the end, he realized all of those things that seemed to be so important, so remarkable about him, was exactly what needed to die. He says, I count those things but dung that I may win Christ. In the unconverted Paul, there was a constant striving, a lack of satisfaction. It says when he persecuted the church, he persecuted them even to strange cities, right at the edge of Israel. He went up to Damascus, as far north as you could go, under the influence of, the, of, the, of Jewish thought. And yet when he met Christ, he dropped all of that and said, Lord, what wouldst thou have me to do? And through that, he discovered something so valuable, so wonderful, that even those past achievements, though they could be used for the, the cause of Christ, 
what they made him relative to other people didn't matter. He had found the true wisdom. And the only audience that was worth impressing, if you will, he served for the audience of one. And that he realized that the best version of himself, the truest representation of who he really was, when he said, I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Because Christ now was coming through fully. Christians are meant to show the world what God always had in mind with humanity, what he had in mind with that very first couple in the garden, the way they were supposed to be. That was always God's intent. When we put on Christ, it's not that we're letting go of things that were so wonderful. We're throwing away the things that obscured the image of who we were really meant to be and who will give not only God the most satisfaction, but us the most satisfaction. Isn't that the one thing in life that everyone is searching for? Happiness? Isn't that the elusive thing that everyone from the richest to the poorest is striving after and thinks is attainable, mind you? Only when you think happiness is unattainable do you commit suicide? Happiness is available to all of us. The question is, where are you going to find it? Paul points the way, and he points to this mystery that we've talked about this morning. And having spoiled principalities and powers, these heavenly um, uh, influences and, 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 and perhaps even angels, demons even, having, having plundered them of their, of their position of authority over mankind, having, having made an end of death, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. He's our leader. He's our pattern. He's the example that God had in mind to show us what he was really thinking, what the real knowledge and the real wisdom was. We can follow him in his triumph. We can join him in that blessedness. And of course, to know the infinite, that's the only way that you will ever find eternal bliss. To make that jump from the finite and the limited to the eternal and the immortal is a big one can only be made one way. Jesus Christ himself said, I am the door, the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. May the Lord add whatever was lacking. Amen. Would a brother... As Phil mentioned, this is the middle of a book, middle of a letter, middle of a mission. Colossians begins with lifting up Jesus, helping us see that he really is everything. And then, just before we began Colossians 2, we have the same words we just sang, 
working in me mightily. What is God working in Paul mightily to do? That we back up another verse, we see whom we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The goal, the purpose of we, the church, is not to, to puff up your minds that you can be, think you're smarter than everyone, as we kind of saw the danger here, not to, to uh, load you up with rules so that you can think that you're more moral and, and uh, uh, legalistic than anyone, which is the second half of this chapter. But we see here that Jesus reconciled us to, through his cross that those who were enemies, even in our own minds and by our own actions, in verse 21, he's reconciled to present you holy, unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. And verses, chapters three and four, get into the detail of what that looks like in your relationships with each other. But it, it's through Jesus that you can not just think yourself smarter, not just act yourself better, you can be changed from the inside out, from the in, inner man, that you can be transformed as we die and resurrect. This is such a deep book, but it ends up being immensely practical. If we start with dying, we can end up living by the power of Jesus, that he can dwell in us completely and work in each one of us mightily, that each one of us can become thoroughly mature and perfect and that we can be who Jesus wants us to be with Christ in us. What a, what a wonderful purpose and goal for each one of us. And may each one of us let that work be completed that we complete this morning's service.